Well, as we gather here in person, we are reminded that there are a number of people that are not with us, and they are viewing online, so we want to say welcome to you as well. Uh, Those are families of little children, those are others uh, maybe by themselves or as a couple, and we just want to say thank you for joining us today, and uh, we want you to invite you to participate in our study right now as we continue to work through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves the last part of Acts chapter 18. What we've been doing on Sunday mornings is just trying to work verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we think that's a great way to hear from the Lord, we would just hear from Him directly. As a young boy, in my fifth and sixth grade years, our family lived in northern Minnesota in a town called Hibbing. And I walked each day to Cobb Cook Elementary School, and just a few blocks in front of that elementary school was one of those old vintage general stores. And I could walk into a store with a dime, and I could buy 10 red gummy coins that were delicious, and it was fantastic. But the most coveted possession for me and my buddies were these little baseball or football sticker yearbooks that Tops, the brand, put out. And for 25 cents, we could buy a book like this that had no stickers in it, but then we could buy packs of stickers for 25 cents. And then we would try to fill our yearbook that would include all of the different teams of the Major League or the NFL. And in the middle of this were the were the most sought-after stickers, they were foil. They were all the all-stars from the previous year. And so every time I'd get an allowance, or it seemed that way, I would apply that to trying to fill my book so I could have a complete collection. Tops, the brand, had made arrangements that if you got to about 85 to 90% full and you wanted to actually purchase the missing stickers or the missing pieces, you could do that. So that's what we would do. I get to about 85, 90% full, and then I would say, these are the stickers that I need. Now, this was before Amazon Prime. And it seemed like everything back then either took four to six weeks or six to eight weeks. Do you remember that? And as a boy, boy, did I wait for those stickers to come. Every day, I'd go into the mailbox and say, are they here yet, Mom? It was the equivalent to Christmas morning. And when they came, I was able to complete all the missing pieces to my book. There's not a lot of things that I kept, but there are a few of these that I have kept over the years because they were such great memories. And by God's grace, they're in our boys' room, and they're still survived to this day. (laughs) Today, in the opening verses of our passage, we're going to see some people that are looking for the missing pieces. Not so much a sticker album, but the missing pieces of life. They're looking for how is it that they can be made right with a holy God. They are looking for fulfillment, for joy, for purpose in life. How is it that they can have their sins forgiven? So let's pick up where we left off last week, beginning in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. 
He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Let me pause here. Now we're shifting from Paul for a few verses here to speak about a man named Apollos. It says here he is from Alexandria. This was a city that was known for its education. In fact, there was a library there that had over 700,000 volumes. It says here in verse 24 that he was an eloquent man. When we think of eloquent in the English language, we think of one that can speak clearly. The Greek word here not only refers to one who can speak clearly, but one who could organize his thoughts in an orderly way, his ideas. It also says here that he was competent in the scriptures. The the Greek word here is dunamis. Maybe your translation says that he is mighty in the scriptures. It says in verse 25 that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. The word instructed in the Greek is the where we get our word catechize. He was systematically taught the ways of God. In verse 25 it says, And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He was fervent in spirit. The word fervent in Greek means to be boiling. He was not only accurate, he was not only competent, he was not only eloquent, but he was enthusiastic and passionate when he preached. It says here that he spoke accurately about the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. Let's pause now. What is this baptism of John? Well, if you know the Gospels, you know that there was a man named John the Baptist, and he was sent to prepare the way for the ministry of Jesus. And he went proclaiming a message of repentance, saying you need to turn from your ways, and there is one that will come after me that will help save you from your sins. And this is the message that Apollos preached as well. The next verse tells us, He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, if you were with us last week, this couple, Aquila the man, Priscilla the woman, were were held out for us as examples. In fact, I said to you that are married or those of you aspiring to be married, this is a couple that would be worthy of your study. This is a couple that God used in their marriage to advance the gospel. Here you have Aquila. By trade, he is a tent maker, a common man. And they were in the synagogue the day that Apollos preached. I can view the conversation going something like this. Hey, honey, Priscilla, what would you think about the message today in the synagogue? Oh, that Apollos, he is a gifted speaker, very eloquent, very passionate. However, as I listened, I could see there was a missing piece in his teaching. I heard the same thing. He spoke on the baptism of John and the need of repentance. He also spoke of Jesus and the miracles he performed. But it was as if he'd understand that Jesus was the missing piece, the fulfillment of the message of John the Baptist. 
I thought the same thing, husband Aquila. You know what we should do? I make a good stew. How about sometime this week, we will invite Apollos over and we will encourage him in the way that he has taught, but we will explain that message to him a little bit more accurately so that he can understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the message that John the Baptist preached. To which Aquila could have said, that's a wonderful idea. Let me go down to the market right now. And so that was the strategy. Let's help this. There are times in the New Testament where we are instructed that we are to correct one another. Second Timothy 2 verses 24 and 25 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, would you think of this picture with me for a moment? Here you have Apollos from Alexandria, a man that was very likely educated, could have had a bachelor's, could have had a master's or the equivalent thereof. And now he is being invited to a tent maker's home to, to have a stew with him and his wife. And here this common laborer is going to lay out for him the theology more accurately. Years ago, when Life Action Ministries came to Highland Crest, they spoke of this need for personal holiness, and they held out a great book for us to read called The Calvary Road. I remember reading that thin little book. I don't remember much of it, but I remember two words. The first word was snake, and the second word was worm. And and the author was saying, there are times where God will bring someone into your life to offer a word of correction. It might have to do with your theology, your teaching, or it might have to do with your heart, your character. And how will you respond? Some respond like a snake. You're coming to me, and I'm going to pounce and attack you. They will not receive that word of correction. But Apollos was more like the worm, who said, you've come. And you've seen a hole in my teaching, and I will receive that. It is God's will for my life to become more like Christ. And if you can aid me in that by identifying a defect in my teaching or in my character, I am going to join you and thank you for that so that I can be more like Jesus and worship God better. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. And look with me at the result of that here in verses 27 and 28. When he, that is Apollos, when he wished to cross to Achaia, Achaia is the region of which Corinth is the capital, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now he is equipped with some theological teaching that is sound and he is powerful in his deliverance. He proclaims that Christ was Jesus. And if you are familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you know in the opening chapters how Paul articulated that there were some within that church that gravitated towards Paul, but there was also some that gravitated towards Apollos. He was that effective that people appreciated his teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul would say, I planted, Apollos watered, 
But God gave the growth. Paul entered Corinth first. He scattered the gospel seed. Sometime later, Apollos came, watered that seed, and then God brought this wonderful gospel harvest. You know, this story is played out in history as well. We could think of John Wesley where something like this happened. He had all the different pieces, but he was never a follower of Jesus. Let me give you another guy from history from born 1490, lived to 1555 by the name of Hugh Latimer. He was a Catholic bishop. He, like Apollos, was educated and absolutely brilliant, yet he was not a follower of Jesus. He thought in order to get right with God, it had to be through some pious acts, some religious practices, or for some good works. On the other side of the spectrum was this lowly monk by the name of Little Balni. Balni was actually a believer. He'd been saved by the grace of God. And he saw this prominent bishop named Hugh Latimer, and he thought to himself, oh, how God could use this man. And so he began to pray, how would I share the gospel with such a a distinguished teacher? And God gave him the idea. In the Catholic Church, there is this emphasis on confessing sin. So this lowly monk, little Bialini, said, Mr. Lattimore, can I get with you and confess my sin to you? Well, sure. And so this lowly monk got him into an area and in his confession shared the gospel. He said, oh, I am a lowly sinner. I am one who has broken the law. I am one that is not able to live up to God's demands. And as a result, I feel the judgment and the wrath of God awaiting me. And I sit here and I'm I'm grieved over my sin. But then I realize that God in his love sent Jesus for me. He died on the cross and gave to me what I could not do. And oh, how I need this gift of my life, of this forgiveness of sins. So I receive this grace and I turn from my ways. And just by sharing that confession, God unleashed the power of the gospel on Hugh Latimer. And he became a strong English reformer during the 1500s. In fact, he was a martyr. And because of his death, many others followed in the waves of the gospel. So we see here, number one in our passage, there is this clarifying that Jesus is the missing piece. As the gospel message enters the city, there were people that had some pieces, they just needed someone to explain the gospel to them. And it's not the only place we're going to see this in our passage. Look with me now at at Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And it happened that while Paulus was at Corinth, so remember, Apollos goes to Corinth and now he is watering that gospel seed. In fact, Apollos was so brilliant that none other than Martin Luther thought he was the author of the book of Hebrews. The second part of verse 19 says, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. If you remember from last week, he had visited Ephesus one other time in chapter 18, but it was just a temporary. He just came in and he says, if I can, if the Lord wills, I will return to you. He is making good on that promise. The next part of verse 1 says, there he found some disciples. 
Now, the wonderful thing about preaching through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, is you cannot dodge the difficult passages. So the next couple of verses are difficult. Let's read them together in verse 2. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Now, I said to you at the beginning, this is a difficult passage. What do I mean by that? Because according to verse 1, there were some disciples. And according to verse 2, Paul asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And I thought when a person became a Christian, that they received the Holy Spirit. It seems as if there is a gap of time here that takes place. And then they receive the Holy Spirit. I think the key to our understanding is there in verse 1. And it is the word disciples. Because we've read through the Gospels, because we've read through the book of Acts, we often associate the word disciple as surely an authentic follower of Jesus. But the word disciple just simply means follower, a learner. It does not necessarily mean that they are a follower of Jesus yet. Let me give you an example. In John chapter 6, Jesus offers a very difficult teaching for the followers that day. And in verse 66 of that chapter, it reads this way. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Do you see that the word disciple does not necessarily mean that they are authentic followers of Jesus? I think that's what we have here in Acts 19 verse 1. We have followers but they've never truly been born again. So in verse 2, when Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's another way of saying, are you a follower of Jesus? Because a follower of Jesus has received the Holy Spirit. Based on what, Chad? Let me read you Ephesians 1, verse 13, where it says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. According to Ephesians 1 verse 13, when we believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Romans 8 verse 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Or Romans 8 verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they receive the Spirit of God in their life. And this Spirit will convict them of sin. This Spirit will help them to understand what the Scriptures mean. This Spirit will also provide assurance that they are a child of God and will give them the power to live and obey the commands of Christ. This is what we see here in this passage So Paul said, hey, John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. You have been waiting 
for this Messiah to come to save you from your sins. I'm here to declare to you that he has come. Now receive this Jesus. And so Paul places his hand on these men and is able to identify the gospel with them. And there is this pouring out of the Holy Spirit as they become followers of Jesus. We see this in other places in the book of Acts as well. We might call this another Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, there is this Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes upon the Jews. In Acts chapter 8, there is also this kind of like a Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes upon the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, there is another sort of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles. And then we see it again here in chapter 19 where it's as if the Holy Spirit comes upon these Old Testament-like saints that have been waiting for this Messiah and they didn't even know that he had come. Covering a commentary this week by Kent Hughes, he provides, I think, a very helpful illustration. He said at the late 1700s, as the early Americans had settled in Virginia, some of them wanted to get out of the city and they just wanted to find a place to themselves and so they would go off into the mountains And because of the threat of the Native Americans, they would kind of hole up in a place where they could protect themselves. Well, many years had passed, and a lot of these mountain people never really even saw other white European Americans. Ten, twenty years had passed, and now there's new settlers coming upon this territory. And they go out and greet them. And these new people are saying, hey, what do you think about this new, this new Capitol Congress? Or what do you think about this new president that we have? This republic that we now have. And these people that have been up in the mountains for 10, 20 years saying, what are you talking about? Our king is the king of England. They say, no. Times have changed. Years ago, we are now a nation. We are now a republic. And we now have a new president. These people in Acts chapter 19 are like uh, under the time of Rip Van Winkle. Time has passed. Jesus has come, and they did not know that. But now that they do, they are born again. They are followers of Jesus. Under this number one in your outline, there is this clarifying that Jesus is the missing piece. I think in our culture, here in Green Bay and in Brown County, Yes, there are people that are absolutely opposed to the gospel. Yes, there are people that are so committed to their religion that they will just reject the grace of God. But I want to suggest to you also that there are people that are missing the pieces. Maybe they understand Jesus. Maybe they understand the Bible. But they're not exactly sure how all these pieces line up. And we as a church family have the opportunity to go out from here, maybe even among family members, and just simply share the gospel and how these pieces line up. That's what we see in these first several verses of our passage this morning. There's this clarifying that Jesus is the missing piece. Now let's, I won't spend as much time on these next few points, but let's look at the second point, and that is this proclaiming the gospel in strategic locations. Look with me at verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. 
But some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This is a familiar pattern that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. Let's go to a strategic location. Let's go to the synagogue where there are people that revere the Old Testament scriptures. It is there where we will proclaim that Jesus fulfills those scriptures. And there's this, also this pattern where people are like, we're done hearing that. And so they go out and find another strategic location. And that is what we see here in this verse, the Hall of Tyrannius. Now, what in the world is that? Let me, let me explain to you what a workday was like during the first century in Ephesus. War, work would begin from 7 in the morning and go to about 11 in the morning. And then from 11 in the morning to about 4 in the afternoon, there would be this break because that was the heat of the day. And then from about 4 in the afternoon up into the evening, maybe till 9 o'clock, people would continue to work. But do you see this middle of the day time period? And there was a man by the name of Tyrannius who evidently had a hall, might we call it a classroom, where he would teach. The word Tyrannius can be uh, find the origins to the word tyrant. Now we call him Dr. Tyrant. I don't know if he got that word from his students or if he was a really difficult grader or whatever, but that's what he was known as. There was a whole f- a five-hour window there in the middle of the day where he was not using his hall. So Paul, having worked in the morning, would work in the evening, says, let me use that five hours to preach the gospel. And look at the effectiveness of it. Look with me at verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. If I offer the word Tychicus, does that name ring a bell to anyone? Just east of Ephesus was a city called Colossae. Tychicus was from Colossae. It is believed that he went to Ephesus and it was there where he heard the gospel. It could be that he heard it right here in the hall of Tyrannius and he was saved and he went back to his town of Colossae, shared the gospel and a church was formed. One of my favorite books in all the Bible is Colossians and Tychicus is the founder of that church. The gospel was spreading in strategic locations. Christian, do you have a strategic location that you are sharing the gospel? Is it in your waiting room or your work room? Is it in your circle of friends that you go to the playground with? Is it right there within your family? Is it in the barbershop as I look over at Roman? We need to have locations where we are able to share the gospel, clarify what the gospel is. One of my favorite memories of our ministry when we were in Flint, Michigan, was right behind our church, a few blocks, was a public school called Potter School. A few of us, myself and a few retired members of our church, went to that school during the school day, and we would, we would do some tutoring kids that were a little bit behind. And while we did that, we would meet the teaching aides and the teachers. And there was one of these aides named Christy, whom was looking to assemble the missing pieces in her life. And just by striking up a friendship, finding out that we belong to the church, just just a few blocks from where she worked, she joined us. 
I believe she came first by herself, and the subsequent week she came with her husband, T-Rock, a, a black man. And I can remember a Wednesday night as we were just preaching and we were teaching, going through the scriptures like this where, where T-Rock or Terrence would come down and says, I am done. I'm stopped. I don't want to run away from God anymore. I want to give my life to Jesus. And we went into my office and was able to lead him to the Lord. How wonderful that was. This was a family that was well connected in the community. And as a result of them coming, there were others within their family that, and friends that would come. And I actually got to perform the wedding of their, their daughter and her fiancé. My, my first wedding was a, was a black wedding. It was magnificent, unlike anything that I'd ever experienced before. And I mean that in a great way. It was all because we had found a strategic location to be able to befriend, to be able to minister, to be able to reach people. Are you looking for that? Do you have that? We need to find that as individuals, as a church. So we see, secondly, proclaiming the gospel in strategic locations. And as that gospel is being proclaimed, thirdly, God is demonstrating his power through the hands of Paul. Look with me at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. Now, when I read that verse, I'm struck by God working in the life of a human being. God wants to use your hands and my hands. Now, they might not look like this, but I believe he is looking for some available people here this morning. Now, listen to what verse 12 says. This this is an unusual verse. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, the word handkerchief could also be translated sweatband. Now, remember, Paul is a a tent maker. He is laboring from 7 in the morning to 11 in the morning, and maybe in the evening from from 4 to 9 o'clock or so, and he is sweating. And it could be that someone would take the sweatband, and there'd be someone who was sick or experiencing some demon oppression, and they just touch it, and they are healed. And then there's this, this idea of an apron. And don't think about your mom or your grandma making apple pie with an apron. Think about a working man, a tent maker with these big, thick canvas uh, aprons in which he's working and he, he's getting all the dirt and grime off his hands to do something. The idea is to take that apron and to touch it with someone who is sick and to see a healing take place. Now, what in the world do we do with a verse like this? I think we just believe it and say, this actually happened. One thing we don't do is build a theology around it or a ministry around it. I I can think of a time when we were uh, in Michigan and one day in the mail we got something. And it was a little thick and when you get something like that, you want to make sure you open it. And so, So when we opened it, it wasn't a handkerchief, but it was a prayer mat. And it said, this is from the Holy Land, and if you will apply this uh, to your prayers, you will surely have that, those answered. And, 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 you know, this costs us some money to do this, so how about you offer a faith offering, and you know that God is going to multiply whatever you give to us. He's going to give it back a, a thousandfold. Has anyone ever received something like that in the mail? Thank you, thank you. Some of you have. I don't know what you've done with it, but my suggestions are really twofold. One, burn it. Uh, or, or secondly, you can keep it for a keepsake to realize that there are a lot of false teachers out there. 
And they would quote this verse. Well, God is demonstrating his power through the hands of Paul. And let's look at a little bit more here in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had had evil spirits. Let me just pause here. You mean there was like an occupation of uh, exorcists? Evidently there was. I don't know how effective they were, but they would try to cast demons out, and and they they would offer different tricks of the trade. And one of them found out that if you offered the name Jesus, that some of these demons would come out. Now, these people did not have faith in Jesus. They were not followers of Jesus. Like abracadabra, they were just going to use the name Jesus. Well, let's see how that works out for them. They said, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You have what we call a reverse exorcism here. They tried to cast out the demon and now the demon is on them. And you want to talk about leaving embarrassed. They are leaving naked. Verse 17 says, And this became known throughout the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So as this gospel message is coming into the city of Ephesus, we see some clarifying that's taking place. We see some proclaiming that is taking place in some strategic locations. We are seeing God demonstrating this power through the hands of available people. And then fourthly, we see Christians confessing and renouncing their sinful ways. Listen, you say, I want to see something like this that happened in Ephesus, happened in Green Bay. How can we see something like this happen? I would suggest to you that is a sovereign work of God, but there is also a pattern here of God's church getting right with God. Look what it says here in verse, 9, verse 18. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. We're not speaking about people who are not believers. We're speaking of people that are believers. And as the work of God is moving throughout Ephesus, they are agreeing with God over sinful practices, habits that they have neglected, habits that they have hidden, and try to keep from others and from God. They are now bringing out into the light and confessing that. Let's give you an example, verse 19. And there are a number of those who had practiced magic arts, brought their books together, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's the equivalent of $6 million. And what was the result of this mass confession? Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Years ago, as we were in Michigan, I had a man that mentored me for a year or two. His name was Al Meredith. He pastored there in Fort Worth. And I said, Al, would you come up and and do a revival meeting? That is a, a series of services from Sunday morning, Sunday night to Wednesday. 
and, and just come up and preach at this church that we're serving at? Oh, he said, I'd be happy to. What sort of theme do you want me to hit on? I said, oh, that's easy. I've been working with the church now for, for four or five years, and, and I would love it if you just hit them hard. Hit them hard with repentance. And so there I stood in the front row as he preached, and I'm like, hit him again, hit him again, hit him again. And, and as he was doing that, I was being hit again and again and again and again. And in a way that I'm not sure I've experienced before, I felt the heaviness of God's presence in my life to the point where there was sin, deep-rooted sin in my life that had never really had been dealt with or confessed. And in that process, I got right. And in that, I would say even today, I am still bearing fruit from that time of repentance. When the pastor got right with God. Now, I just want to suggest to you that if we want to have an impact on Green Bay, I want to say that I've got to do more of that. I believe you've got to do more of that as well. Now, if, I, if I'm saying something, if I, if I could just meddle for a little bit, is there any known sin in your life right now? Is there any sinful practice that you have allowed to take place, a habit, an attitude, I mean, is there something in your house right now that should not be there? I mean, here in Ephesus, they burn stuff. Has anyone ever burned stuff that was in your house? I have. (laughs) I was like, this is not helping my walk, and and this needs to get out of my house. We're trying to be biblical, church family. And if that's what they did here in the book of Ephesus, is there not a cleansing that needs to take place in our own hearts and maybe in our own house as well? And if I'm saying this, and something is coming to your mind, is that not the Spirit of God saying, you need to address this. You need to confess this. And you know, there are times where, where there is sin that maybe has been such a habit in our life that we don't even know how to get unbound by it. And that's why we have a church family that say, listen, I got this in my life, and I'm, I'm tired of it, but I don't even know how to get out of it. Would you please help me? And if that's you, you come to me, you come to a leader within the church and say, I need help. And let us come and minister and serve one another in this area. So there's just Christians confessing and renouncing their sinful ways. May we need more of that. And then let me conclude then with fifth. And this is a large portion that we're going to read. I'm just going to call it the gospel confronting the gods of culture. The gospel confronting the gods of culture culture. You see, as the gospel was advancing in Ephesus, there was some idolatry that was being flushed up. You remember when I said at the beginning of the service that there was a temple to Artemis, the temple Diana. This was a a woman who was a warrior. Think Wonder Woman. That's kind of what that was back then. And they would come and worship. This was the distinctive of Ephesus, like Lambeau Field is our distinctive. And as the gospel was advancing there, the people that had built their lives and their careers and their their jobs around the temple felt threatened. So let's see what happens. Verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent them into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. 
Let's look at what happens here in Ephesus, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The, the phrase, the way, is just referring to this Christian movement. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and says, men, you know that this, from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And he is right. And what a wonderful thing to be accused of. Verse 27. And there is a danger, not only in this trade of our hours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that there she may even be deposed from her magnificence, whom she whom all of Asia and the world worship. Do you see what's happening here? As this message of Jesus is spreading, it is invading our way of life. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocras, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Erics, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But they recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Aramaeus of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another." But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The people, the workers, who had built their lives on this God of Artemis are now threatened. And there is such confusion. What do we do about this? Our city, the thing that we are known for, is no longer being esteemed because Jesus is being esteemed more than this. You know what the equivalent of this might be? You know what a contemporary example of this might very well be? Now, this night might sit very well. But it would be Mark Murphy sitting in city council and saying, city council and mayor, we have a real problem here in Green Bay. The churches are filled on Sunday mornings. we got people out there repenting of their sins and, and sharing the gospel, and, and we're seeing this spread throughout our whole state. And as a result, 
Lambeau Field is empty on Sunday mornings. And if we don't do something about that, we are going to lose our team. It might go to a a city that doesn't even have a good football team like Chicago or something like that. If we don't do something like that. I see Isaac over there and I cannot resist. I've always got to do that. And after Mark Murphy gets done, I'm just going to say it. The organizer of the casinos comes up and says, you know what? He's right. If we don't do something about this soon, all the casinos are going to be closed. And and then the tavern league owner comes up. I'm here to represent all the bars and taverns of Brown County. And I'm telling you right now, we have a serious threat to our way of life because this Jesus thing has gone way too far. And then a millennial comes up, a techie that comes up and says, I just want you to know I represent all the porn sites. And I'm just letting you know that our business is drying up. We've got to do something about this. I mean, wouldn't you want to see something like that? And if God did something like that in Ephesus in the first century, has God changed? Could not, could not God do something like that again? We need to see a picture of what he has done in the past to see a picture of what he can do in the future. As we look at this passage here, I I know this is a sovereign act of God, but may God do it. May God do it again. When you think of this church in Ephesus, it is a prominent church. In fact, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you remember the second and third chapter of that book, uh, there, there are some letters that are written to these seven churches. It's as if Jesus gives them assessment of of where they are at in their progress. And of Ephesus, he says, you, know, you guys are doing a wonderful job. You've got sound theology. You're upholding this. You're making sure that false teachers are not emerging. But I have this one thing against you. Do you remember what it was? You've lost your first love. And it could be, loved ones, that you would say, at one time, my life was like that church there in Ephesus. I was... I was, by the grace of God, I was passionate about my faith. I could not wait to be able to share it with others, to clarify the gospel. I was seeing God work mightily in my life. I was quick to confess my sin. But in time, dust is collected, and I have lost my first love. You remember what he says? Return. Return to me. Maybe that's a word for you this morning. If you lost that joy, if you lost that first love, the church in Ephesus had. And maybe it's time for you to return. Or maybe it's time for you. You've heard all the pieces line up today, and it makes sense to you. It's time for you to trust Jesus to save you from your sins, so that you can be a follower of Jesus. It could be that he has exposed this lifestyle. You've been a fake. You have hidden sin, and you are not dealing with it. And it's time for you to get that right, to confess that, and ask for help. We want to see what God did in Ephesus, God do in Green Bay. It starts in the church house. And may we be a part of that process. Let's agree with God in our sin. Let's pray.
Father, what, a, what a, an encouraging portrait we see of a city of Ephesus that I believe was so far off in comparison to, to what we see in Green Bay. Uh, in Green Bay, we actually see people that are worshiping in Bible-preaching churches around here. In Ephesus, they had a blank slate. And you came in, and you invaded an idolatrous, idolatrous culture. Oh, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Use our humble little church here. And maybe you would raise up other churches as well. May you clean our hearts, clean my heart to get me where I need to be, in our church family where they need to be, where we could be out clarifying, showing people the missing piece, the gospel, proclaiming it from a strategic location, seeing God work mightily in our lives again, restoring broken relationships, challenging sinful lifestyles then ultimately to be invading this culture that needs to be invaded in the worst way. In Jesus' name, amen.